Dear Mr. and Mrs. Bateman. Dear Mrs. Cushman. We regret to inform you that your husband has been killed in action. The tragic loss of your son has shocked all of us deeply. I extend my most profound sympathy to you on the recent loss of your daughter, who laid down her life on the field of battle. It is nearly impossible to find the words to say to the parents of one who has been killed in war. Some measure of comfort may be derived from the knowledge that he died in the service of his country and in the defense of a peace-loving people. Her enthusiasm and discipline marked her as an outstanding soldier, and as such, she commanded the respect of the officers and fellow soldiers of this unit. I am confident that his devotion to duty, at the cost of all held dear, will hasten the day when ruthless aggression shall disappear from the face of the earth. I am proud to have served with him. Our faith enables us to withstand the shock and grief of death. It is my earnest prayer that Almighty God will sustain and strengthen you in this hour of trial. While the loss of your beloved one will be a hardship, we know that no life is truly lost for those who have faith in God. To all of you who have received these letters of condolence, and to all the brave men and women who gave their lives in defense of freedom, we remember you and honor you today. Oh, church, you know, on this Memorial Day weekend, you and me have a lot to be thankful for and a lot of people to thank. You know, I am moved when the scripture reminds me that those who have gone before us, that those who have crossed over to the other side ahead of us are aware of us here and now. And that makes our giving thanks on Memorial Day all the more significant. When we give thanks, we honor that sacrifice again. Jesus said, as you know, there's no greater love than to lay down their life, his, her life, in service to us. And so I want to ask you, if you would, please, would, would you stand as we pray together in Thanksgiving on this Memorial Day? And would, would you bow your heads with me? Father God, we come to you this morning thanking you for the heart and spirit that you gave to people who were then willing to put themselves in harm's way for us, God. Not only for our freedoms, Lord, but for our very lives out of a heart of serving. And Jesus, we know that this pleases you deeply. And God, it humbles us. And so we give thanks this morning on Memorial Day for so many who never got to be 20 or 30 or 40, who never got to be moms and dads, who never got to know best friendships that last a lifetime because they gave themselves. God, we think of families without husbands and wives, without sons or daughters, moms or dads. And, and we ask you this morning, God, that you would lift them in the way that only you can, God, in their souls, in their spirits. Lift them as they understand that there is no greater love 
than that that their family members have given. We ask your blessing on them this morning. And we ask you finally, Lord, that you would make us mindful of all that's been done for us, that we might be willing to do the same for others. We pray for that this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. Yeah. I don't ever want to stop pausing, you know, on Memorial Day and soaking that in. Even though we all know it's going to rain on Memorial Day, right? This is like the one weekend a year where we are free to exercise passive-aggressive as people drive out of town to go camping. We can say, well, I can't go, but you're going to be miserable. We can kind of enjoy that, you know, a little bit. It's always that way, but um, it's good to see you. Welcome this morning in, in church Huge thanks. Uh, You know what? I just want to pause for a moment, not only to say thanks to Pastor Weston and the worship team. Worship is so powerful. It resets the heart and mind. The Bible says it enables me to think clearly. That's that's worth a whole sermon this morning. We're not going to go there, but worship enables me to think clearly. It resets my heart and mind. So huge thanks. The worship team gets down here at six in the morning and they're here all day. And this morning, can we just do something we, we just usually take for granted? You may have noticed at the beginning of our worship set, we had a, some technical problems going on there. Uh, how'd you like to try and fix the car while it's still running? That's what our technical team did this morning. Can we appreciate them this morning? Yeah. Thank, thank you for that. And one more thing before, uh, before we open God's word this morning. Uh, I want to just briefly share with us about, about what happened this week again in our country. And maybe you had a chance to see the little video that I put up uh, on the church website earlier this week. But I just want to thumbnail that for a second just to remind us because we the people of God. We most need to understand when the whole world is asking, where is God in the middle of this? We need to understand for ourselves and for those around us. So let me just say a couple things very briefly. And the first one is this. We, we as followers of Jesus, we know and understand that our God, he weeps. He grieves with us. He's not above it. He's not beyond it. We don't serve a clockwork God who just kind of mechanically runs the universe. We serve a living God, the Bible says. And, and we see him weeping in compassion and in hurt. You know, he went to the family of Lazarus, whom he was just about to call out of the grave. And he didn't say, don't cry. He cried with them. And I think it's important that we understand that Our God is a grieving God. The Bible says he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The Bible says, here's what he felt. Here's what he felt in his heart. He cried out from the cross, God, why have you forsaken me? He he cried those words. You know what helps me? Not to know that he's above it, but to know that he feels it alongside you and I. Now, some people will say, Well, then why doesn't he do anything about it? Well, church, understand this. Once that judgment falls, it's game over. That judgment falls on everyone. That falls on you. That falls on me. And there's no longer any chance once that judgment falls. The Bible says in 2 Peter that God is waiting that as many as possible would repent. He's willing to go through this pain 
in the hope of saving more. But he will judge. He will bring his judgment. And he will undo all that the wicked have done. So the first thing is to know that God grieves. The second thing, we say, how could, how could somebody do this? Well, be careful. Because what happened to this man was that bit by bit, he began to believe in his anger. As it grew, as he felt it, as he nursed it, he slowly began to believe in it. And that temptation faces every one of us. The Bible tells us this, man's anger cannot bring about the righteous life God desires. But sometimes we get deceived into thinking that it can. That somehow what the world needs is an explosion of our anger. This man slowly came to believe that. He's not the only one. And the Bible says to us as believers, it says this, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, each day, each day, before you go to bed, take time to put it away. Take time to say, God, I'm bringing my anger to you. I'm laying it at your feet. I'm trusting your judgment. You said vengeance belongs to you, not to me. So God, I'm laying my anger at your feet. The Bible doesn't say don't feel it. It says each day, lay it at the feet of the Father. Proverbs says the fool gives vent to his rage. But the wise man brings calm. So we want to be beware of believing in our own anger. And then the last thing is just to remember. Jesus says all the dead will be called out of the grave and restored to their moms and dads, restored to their brothers and sisters and their friends. He has the last word. And when that comes, he'll wipe away our tears and the wicked go to eternal hell. God's judgment is profoundly real. And we not ever need fear that his judgment won't come. Instead, we can look forward to knowing that at the end of the day, our tears will be wiped away and we will be renewed. God has the last word and we're called to remember that. I, I, I want to pray. I know you do. I know you have. But I want to pray one more time before we open his word. And I want to pray specifically for families in Texas and for our nation. M more than my anger, my nation needs my prayers. So let's bow our heads together. Would you do that? Father God, we come to you this morning, first of all, moved by your tears, that you would weep with us, that you would feel what we feel. When you cried out from the cross, God, we know that you feel what we feel. We thank you that you are a living God not above us, but alongside us. And we thank you for that. We worship you for that. And, and God, we pray this morning as well that you would teach us to put away our anger, our rage, to teach us to be the sons of God in the way you taught us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. We pray for that. Lord, we come to you lifting up these families Oh, God, their need is beyond our power. We pour out our compassion and our, our grief. But God, you, 
you can touch them in their souls, in their spirits. And, and we pray that you carry them in this time. God, we pray also that you, would, that you would lead us as a nation to repentance, that we would turn away from our faith and our anger and find instead your Holy Spirit cleansing us, living in us and changing us. We pray for that, God. We ask for your grace and we offer our repentance, Lord. Let our anger be dealt with every day that we might be part of your solution. We pray for that. Lift those families up. Give us wisdom. We offer our repentance as a country. God, put an end to this evil, this wickedness in us and among us. We ask that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's important. It's important that we do that. You are not just a mind and a body and emotions. You and me are our spirits. And how about that? A two-for-one sermons on Sunday morning, on Memorial Day weekend, right? Kind of feels that way. A couple of really quick announcements. Uh, number one, remember that next Sunday is our second spring baptismal. We had a number of people who missed the first spring baptismal. And so next week, we've got, I know we've got 10 people signed up already. If you have received Jesus as your Savior, but you've never made that public confession of faith, that's what baptism is, a public confession of faith, then I want to invite you. You can be part of that next Sunday. Just contact the church office, stop by the guest center, scan the code on the seat in front of you, uh, get in touch with us however you want, and we'll include you next week in that celebration. So baptisms next week, summer camp's right around the corner. They're earlier this year than past years, so kids, teenagers want to get you signed up. That's coming up real fast. Um, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have Senior Sunday, where we're going to celebrate our graduating seniors. Pastor Josh has been calling all the seniors in the church to get a picture both from when they were very young, and then a picture in their graduation year. If by some possibility you haven't been called yet, we somehow missed you, we apologize, but please let us know. We want to include your senior in that so you can get in touch with Pastor Josh and get that picture there so that we can rejoice with you in, in your, uh, your senior graduating this year. Grab your Bible if you would, friends. Open it to Romans chapter 13, and uh, we're going to continue our journey through Romans. We began way back in January. We're into the home stretch. We're closing down. Remember what we said all the way through this series. We said, it's God's agenda in our lives to grow us to the place where we receive his word on its own terms. That is where we let God talk to us from his father heart about what's important for us to know instead of assuming that we already know what we need and only going to him on those terms. See, when we walk through the Bible verse by verse, that's what we're doing. We're letting God teach us about things we don't even know we need to know yet. <laughs> and we've been doing that all spring. And here we are. In Romans chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. And this morning, as we get started, I have a question that's, that's really only for the fellas. So guys, heads up. All right? Raise your hand, fellas, if you've ever successfully changed a diaper. Go ahead, put your hand up. Go ahead, guys. All right? Now, you notice that not every room in the hand, or hand in the room is up. Let me help you with this. Into the life of every brave man who aspires... <laughs> who aspires to carry the high title of dad, comes a deep and demanding trial of strength and spirit. Hercules faced the monsters of the underworld. Ulysses battled the sirens and the cyclops. King David wrestled lions and giants. But the man who would be dad 
must gird his loins and steel his heart and buck up his courage to face this great test of his manhood. This is no light and momentary affliction. It is a test of your soul, a trial of your strength and fortitude. Rise to the occasion and you will be called blessed by the mothers of your sons and daughters. Fail and you will be cast into a sea of shame where there is gnashing of teeth. Let no man flee from this moment. For when you have overcome, then you will hear those precious words. Well done, good and faithful servant. I dub thee dad. Amen? Amen. Go ahead and cut that off, you guys. Sometimes you got to do tough stuff in order to be part of the good stuff. Sometimes in order to, to bear the honor of being a parent... You got to learn how to do the dirty work. Amen. Parenting isn't for cowards. The joy of raising kids is for people who learn how to do the dirty work, male and female, how to make the everyday sacrifices that make a difference and that earn you the credibility to speak life into another human being. And this morning, the reason I bring this up, the reason I ask this and the reason I bring this up is... Because the spirit of Jesus wants to teach us, his disciples, about the sacrifices that make us part of his mission in the world. In other words, in the same way that it's only by changing those diapers that you get to be dad. In the same way, God says, there's some things I'm going to ask of you. It's dirty work. It's hard work. It's difficult work. But I'm asking it of you because it's the only way for you to be part of what I'm doing in the world. And there's nothing more satisfying than that. This morning, the Spirit of Jesus wants to speak to us about that reality. And I remember back in the 80s when I was learning to be an EMT in the military, learning to be a first responder. And, and in those days, there was something called the AIDS crisis, which many of us will remember. And so there was kind of that same fear about infection and disease spreading and we got to a moment in the heat of that crisis where the, the class of EMTs that I was working with, several of them said, well, you know what? With all this going on, I, I don't think I'm willing to give CPR until I know that it's safe to do so. Oh my goodness, what a debate broke out in our classroom. We argued back and forth and finally the instructor brought an end to it. He said, look, if you're not prepared to go in harm's way, if you're not prepared to risk you can't earn this job. You can't be a first responder if you're not prepared to risk yourself in order to help someone else. In the same way, God calls us to put up with some things, some specific things that the apostle is going to talk about here. Some sometimes dangerous things so that we can work with him in his great mission to save people from that eternal judgment that is coming on the world. And that's what's in the apostle's mind as he turns into chapter 13 to talk about something that was very real then and very real now. Let's listen to the apostle. Romans chapter 13, beginning with verse one. Here's what the Bible says. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God 
has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. Let's pause for a moment. Let that sink in. The Apostle Paul is writing in the context of an unjust Rome, a corrupt Herod, a wicked Sanhedrin, and he's calling for our fundamental attitude towards these things to be one of submission. Now, we're going to talk about what that means and what that doesn't mean. But before we hurry there, let yourself hear what God says to us, what God says to you. You know, we live in a time when there are a lot of people speaking and using the name of Jesus and advocating all kinds of agendas. Friends, there have always been false prophets. They have always been many. Most of Israel's journey was a story of real prophets pointing out to people the false prophets. Jesus in his day warned repeatedly and explicitly, there are people who will be religious. They will do miracles. They will use my name. They will call themselves my people. But they aren't, so watch out for them. The Apostle Paul will go on to say, there are a lot of people who will use the name of Jesus, but it's not the real Jesus. And we live in that kind of context and environment. How do we know the difference? It's by listening to the word of God. It's by listening to his holy and inspired scriptures. And they are calling us to something specific here. Paul goes on. Look at verses three to five. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, here defined as that attitude of rebellion, be afraid because he does not bear the sword for nothing. He's God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. What does that mean? We're going to see in just a moment. You know, I have to tell you, frankly, there are a lot of times when I don't want to hear this. <laughs> Just like I don't want to know it's time to change another diaper. There, there's times when this is so uncomfortable for me, but God's word is clear, unambiguous, and emphatic about it. And there's a reason. And we're going to find out about that in just a moment. But let's remember that it's either we listen to the Bible or we make up our own religion. <laughs> it's either we listen to God's word or we're just, it's fake stuff. It's just made up. It has no more power than a cartoon or a myth. When we hear the scriptures, we are hearing God speak. It's unmistakable. It's unequivocal. It's clear. So let's understand, though, first of all, that the reason God calls us to this particular attitude when it's uncomfortable, the reason God calls us to change this particular diaper, Paul gives several. First of all, he says that he, the governor, the governing authorities are an agent of wrath. In other words, the government exists, friends, we must understand, to minimize disorder. You, you can't take it all away. There's no scenario on earth where you get rid of all disorder. It's just not going to happen. The government exists to minimize it, to put a control on it. 
and to maximize peace and security in society. It's never going to be perfect. But to move it forward as much as we can for the sake of one another. And even though such wrath is imperfect and can't solve all our problems, it's necessary to recognize it because of the sinful nature of human beings. People are fundamentally wrestling with what's wrong, with sin, and with wickedness. You know, one of the most difficult and demanding jobs in our world is that of an agent of wrath, what we call a police officer. I have the utmost respect and appreciation for them because of the junk they deal with every day. It's ugly, it's hard. Nobody wants to do that stuff. Maybe they think they do until they start having to do it. And then they go, man, this is hard. I have a nephew that's just getting ready to graduate from police academy in Oregon. He's going to step out into that world and I pray for him. Because I I wouldn't want to have to do what he has to do. We are called to show respect to the authorities because of the difficulty of the, the mission that God has called them to. Now, uniform doesn't make somebody a good guy. We've learned that. But a world without police is not a world you want your kids to grow up in. So the apostle says, hey, recognize that the government carries this authority. It's not perfect. Sometimes it's wrong. But respect it, show submission to it. Because God knows this is the only way in the short term to minimize the effect of sin in our world. Then he goes on to say, pointedly, three times in the passage, he says, there's no authority except that which God has established. In other words, Adopt an attitude of respect and submission because God says so. Because the alternative is worse. You know, describing one of the worst times in Israel's history, the Bible says in Judges chapter 17 and verse 21, describes the attitude at that time and the misery of living under it. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. Friends, that's a road to misery. The Bible exhorts us because of that to show respect for imperfect governments and authorities. To put it another way, God was calling Israel to hearken back to his counsel to Cain, the very first murderer, who, when God asked him about his brother, said this, am I my brother's keeper? He said it sarcastically. He said it as if he wasn't responsible for his brother. And the whole point of the question is God says, yes, you are. And that each of us is called to a kind of submission, a kind of submission, a kind of respect, because it's good for us as a whole. Because it's better than the alternative. We must understand that God tells us the imperfect governments of our world are better than the alternative. Changing a diaper is yucky, but raising a kid without diapers is a whole other level of yuck. And there's the idea. And that same idea is over in 1 Peter chapter 2 and and other places in Scripture when Peter writes, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake, Greg, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority, to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, to commend those who do right. It is God's will, catch this, it is God's will that by doing good, by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. You know, in those days, many accused the church of being immoral. They thought we met together at night because we were participating in orgies. It was the conspiracy theory, the fake news of the day. 
The church was accused of those things. The church was accused of being cannibals because after all, we practiced this thing called communion where we received the body and blood of the Lord and we took it into ourselves. They, they thought we were having secret cannibalistic gatherings. We were accused of being godless because we rejected this pantheon of many gods and said there's only one. And so as a consequence, we were accused of being anti-religious, if you can imagine. The early church was accused of being rebellious because we refused to say Caesar is king above all. We said Jesus is king above all. And yeah, we'll give Caesar what's due, but Jesus is the real king. So all these accusations were made against church. Paul doesn't say, arm yourselves and take over. He says, by doing good, silence this ignorant talk. <laughs> I remember some years ago when Ron and I moved into a new neighborhood and and our neighbors found out that we were pastors, that we led a church. And oh my goodness, did they have a negative reaction. They just instantly didn't like us, thought we didn't like them. And they were pretty belligerent about it. Rhonda and I looked at each other and said, hey, we know how to handle this. By doing good, we know how to silence the ignorant talk of those who don't know us. And so we set out on a quest. It took a while, <laughs> okay? But then we got to the point eventually where those very same neighbors were like, hey, we'll take care of your house when you're gone. You want us to walk your dog? We'll walk your dog. Hey, you know, it was beautiful. It wasn't anything other than letting them see us doing good that changed their hearts. And God says, I want you, my people, to do that, to live like that, to pursue that goal. And, and, and that leads us to the last and most important reason we're taught to submit to the government. And Paul talks about that over in 1 Timothy 2 in the same context when he says this, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Peaceful and quiet. Why? Because this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, Paul says, I want you to put up with this. I want you to deal with this so that you can keep the main thing, the main thing. And that is God's mission to save lost people. He says, I want you to be willing to change some diapers so that you can be a parent. So that you can be part of my mission to reach lost people, to save lost people. Because there is coming a moment when everything you and I obsess and worry about here and now on this earth will be instantaneously and eternally forgotten. And that's the moment when we step through into judgment. That's the moment when we step through into salvation. God says, because that moment is coming. Actually, Paul's going to circle back that in a moment. Because that moment is coming, be willing to change some diapers. Be willing to put up with some nonsense. And, and the nonsense gets pretty intense. We're going to see that in a moment. But the point is that God calls us to submit so that we can get on with much more important business. And that's the business of sharing the good news of the gospel. Now, let's talk a little bit about what this submission means and doesn't mean, just for a few minutes, so we can have some clarity there. First of all, submission to the government in this context doesn't mean cooperating with evil. It doesn't mean just being indifferent. It's not a robotic submission. For example, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, the apostles are commanded by the government to stop preaching the gospel. And they said this. They said, sorry, can't do that. That's my paraphrase. Here's how it actually reads. We must obey God rather than men. Now, those same apostles were willing to submit to arrest and imprisonment and mistreatment and a kangaroo court, but they said, we can't stop talking. We just can't. That's the line in the sand, they were saying, a line in the sand. They said, boy, you know, if you tell us that, you know, we want to be submissive, we want to be cooperative, but we can't cross that line. 
We see something of the same over in Daniel chapter 3. You remember when those three young Hebrew men were arrested for refusing to worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. They were commanded by the king to do so. Their response was, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. And it's, it's a really interesting moment because Jeremiah tells us that when Israel went into bondage in Babylon, God had a very specific message for him. His message was this, when you go to Babylon, I want you to cooperate. I want you to be submissive. And in fact, those three men were actually serving in the Babylonian government for all his paganness and wickedness because God through Jeremiah the prophet had commanded him, but there was still a line in the sand. <laughs> So we're not going to worship your image. We want to cooperate, but there's a limit. We're not going to go that far. Submission to the government doesn't mean abdicating. But at the same time, there is this popular lie in the world that says if you cooperate at all, you are somehow complicit in an evil government or somehow compromising with it. That is a, a bunch of silly baloney. Let me explain. In Jesus' day, many Israelites were rabidly anti-government. They were known as the zealots. You read about them in your Bible. Knowing this, the Pharisees tried to turn people against Jesus by playing these factions among his followers off against each other. The Bible tells us about one occasion, Matthew chapter 22. Here's what happened. The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Tell us, they said. What's your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, the, their thought was, hey... If he says yes, then we can turn half of his followers against him. If he says no, we can turn the other half. So this is beautiful. We got him over a barrel. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a coin used to pay the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose portrait is this? The coin was stamped with the image of Caesar. Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. In other words, if you give to Caesar what Caesar's demanding of you, that doesn't take away from your mission to carry out my kingdom, to preach this gospel. No, no, do that. Change that poopy diaper so you can get on with the more important stuff. Be willing to put up with that so that you can be part of my mission. When Jesus said that, when he told him to pay those taxes, was he complicit in the sins of the Roman government? No. Did he consider you and me to be complicit if we submitted? No. As a matter of fact, over in Matthew chapter 17, we read a story about Jesus doing a supernatural miracle. A coin comes out of a fish's mouth just so these disciples can pay taxes to an unjust government. Why? Because there's a bigger mission. <laughs> Sometimes you got to put up with stuff in order to get on with important stuff. And that's the call of the scriptures to us. And, and Jesus takes this to the nth degree. In Matthew chapter 23, he says, even if, I say this tenderly and gently, friend. He says, even if your, your church's leadership is messed up, even if it falls short, even if it doesn't meet your expectations, he says, I want you to respect it and submit to it. Listen to what he says. Matthew chapter 23, verse 2, Jesus is speaking. He says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That was they, 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 they carry his institutional church authority. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. Now, he says, don't do what they do because they don't practice what they preach. But he says, show a respect and a submission, even though maybe they're not worthy of it. Why? So we can get on with the more important mission of worship and people encountering God. You know, to paraphrase a few weeks ago, he says, don't go weed pulling. You'll destroy the wheat. This is a big deal. 
The Bible says this is why, Romans chapter 13, Paul goes on. He finished in this thought, verses 6 and 7. He says this is why you pay taxes so you can get on with the more important stuff. For the authorities are God's servants. They give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. In other words, do your duty under the government and have a good attitude about it so that you can get on with a more important thing. You see, church, we must understand. We're almost done this morning. We must understand that submission is neither complicity nor compromise. It's making the main thing the main thing. When I worked in the emergency room, you know, we learned what are called the ABCs of, of first aid or of first responding. And it's a list of priorities that are crucial in a moment of crisis. And the ABC stands for this, airway, breathing, and circulation. When you find yourself at an accident scene and there's carnage and trauma everywhere and you're assessing a patient, the first thing you check is not the blood spurting out of them. Now that seems kind of, oh no, that's what we get. No, no, it's not the first thing. You see, there's this thing called an airway. If they don't have an airway, it doesn't matter if they have blood. <laughs> so you make sure they have an airway. Can this person breathe? Is it possible? If not, we got to deal with that before anything else. And then B, breathing. Are they breathing? If they're not breathing, stopping the bleeding won't help. We need to find out if they're, and then we get to see circulation, which is the bleeding. The idea is if you stop the bleeding, but the patient isn't breathing, it's not a win. And something like that is God's heart when he talks to us about putting up with the poopy diaper of the government. In fact, this keeping the main thing, the main thing sometimes goes so far, catch this, as cooperating with persecution. Jesus surrendered to the authorities. Peter said, let's fight. Jesus said, well, I could. I can call on 12 legions of angels, but no, that's not how we go forward. The early believers, we find in Hebrews chapter 10, had undergone very explicit and direct persecution. And they responded to it with a certain spirit because they understood where God was coming from. You read about it in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 and 34, when the writer of Hebrews says to the believers, remember those earlier days after you received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. You sympathize with those in prison, those thrown in prison by the government. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Wow. What could cause somebody to joyfully accept the confiscation of their property? Only their absolute commitment to a greater cause. Only their absolute devotion to them. He said, you did that because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. In other words, the people of God are a people who are full of his spirit and understand that persecution is sometimes the price of sharing the gospel. Rhonda at work is often approached by co-workers and they'll say, how come you're not worried? How come you're not upset? How come you're not freaking out? She says, I have a savior. I have a king. I'm on a mission. It's bigger than all this. And so I'm not overcome by lesser things. Look, friends, there's a lot of voices in our world calling for rebellion against the government. God isn't. He is calling us instead to get on with a much bigger mission of rebelling against hell, of rebelling against sin, and of preaching the gospel. Now, there's one more thing we should understand, and this is where we wrap up. Submission to the government doesn't mean we stop advocating as citizens. See, here's, here's a, a difference that we need to grasp between what Jesus is saying in his day, what Paul is saying in his day, and the day that we live in. In those days, you had a king, he was absolute authority, his word was law, and so there wasn't, in many cases, this sense of civil rights. We live 
in what political scientists call a republic. It is built on democracy. It's not a pure democracy. It's what we call a republic. But in that republic, we have rights and responsibilities as citizens, and we are free. Indeed, we are called to advocate using those rights. But we never go beyond them. We advocate within them. We see the Apostle Paul doing that over in Acts chapter 22. Scripture says, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty in a court of law? He was using his citizenship. And, and we're called to do those kinds of things. But what we are not called is to rebel against the government. We are called to submit so that we can get on with the more important things. So Paul winds it up in chapter 13. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the debt to love one another. He who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. Whatever other commandments are summed up in loving your neighbors. Self-love does no harm to its neighbor. It's therefore the fulfillment of the law. And then he finishes. This is where he circles back to that thought about the bigger mission. He says, do this understanding the present time. What does that mean? He says, the hour has come to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, close yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and don't think how to gratify the sinful nature. He says, do this submission thing, understanding the present time. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, gang, eternity's about to break in on us. The, the, the show's almost over. <laughs> and, and, and when the curtain comes down and judgment falls, live in the light of that moment. Live aware that that puts an end to every other discussion. <laughs> There's a lot of things that you and I are tempted to obsess about and worry about and be afraid about that one nanosecond after eternity breaks in, we won't even care about it in the slightest. All that will matter in that moment is what God sees in your heart and in my heart. Paul says, live like that. Understand the present time. This is all coming to an end. And there's a big mission that's bigger than all the lesser things. Change the diaper so you can be a parent. Leith Anderson tells about, Pastor Leith tells about a bicycle race, his friend entered in India. His friend was an uh, amateur bicycle racer. He found himself on vacation in India, heard that there was going to be a bicycle race in the city he was staying in, and he thought to himself, hey, can I borrow a bike? Borrowed a bike and decided to go enter the race. He got down there, lots of people, he doesn't speak the language, he can't read the language, so there's all this carrying on, but he can figure out, hey, there's a starting line, everybody's lining up on the starting line, let's get over there and make it happen. So he, he knows it's key thing in bicycle races, you've got to break out of the crowd first, so he gets on the starting line right up front, and somebody comes up with a gun and raises the gun, he's thinking, I got this, boom, the gun, and he takes off like a shot. And he gets down to the end of the block, and he suddenly realizes nobody else is racing with him. <laughs> And he stops, there's crowds everywhere, and he looks back, and nobody's left the starting line. And he realizes, hey, well, something's wrong here. Eventually, a guy who spoke English that he approached in the crowd, who was laughing at him, explained, no, no, this is a different race. This is a novelty race. We have it once a year. The purpose of this bicycle race is to see who can go the least amount of distance without putting their feet down. <laughs> Everybody's back there wobbling on their bike without trying to go forward. He's taken off and everybody's laughing at him. Pastor Lee says, sometimes we do the same thing. 
we forget what victory really is. And when we forget it, we start doing crazy things. We forget about what matters most. You know, if I can close this morning, friends, I remember about a year and a half ago when this whole dumb COVID thing was raging. There were people in our church who were in the hospital in very bad situations. And they called and said, Pastor Greg, would you come and pray with me? In order to pray, I had to go down there and wash with all kinds of chemicals, put on this giant spacesuit with an air hose and go through a, another washing procedure into this room. And then I had to repeat that every single person I visited. Take it all off, change my clothes, wash again, put it all on again, go back into the next one. There's a part of me thinking, this is kind of overkill, don't you think? But when I got into the room and they saw their pastor and I grabbed my sister and my brother's hand and we prayed together for healing, it was all worth it, all worth it. Now I was ready to go through it again and again and again because that moment was too precious. God says, hey, gang, I know the government's a poopy diaper. Put up with it because there's something more important, so much more important, and it will satisfy your spirit like nothing else can to know that you're part of that mission. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We, we, we wrestle with this. We struggle with this. But your heart and your spirit is so clear. God, help us to walk in your ways that we might be part of your mission. Give us that wisdom to put away our anger, to not let the sun go down on it, to not believe in it, to instead understand that as your ambassadors, it's the sharing of this gospel that matters most. We pray for that. We ask it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, friends? Just a couple more chapters in Romans. I didn't greet everybody online. It's great to have you with us. Look forward to seeing you with us in person. We're together in spirit, though. Now may the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit go with you throughout this week. Go with God. Tell someone you love them. Have a great Memorial Day. Mm.